welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Clean Tech Talk is brought to you by Voltus, a leading technology platform connecting distributed energy resources to electricity markets, delivering less expensive, more reliable, and more sustainable electricity. Voltus is on a mission to help solve the climate crisis by unlocking the full value of distributed energy resources, and we want your help getting there. To view our open positions, visit voltus.co slash cleantechnica. That's www.voltus.co forward slash cleantechnica. We are here for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, and today we have a, a very special guest, Bill McKibben. I don't think you need an introduction, Bill, but you know, I would say he's one of the most notable and uh, influential climate activists of the past decade plus. Just overall, tremendous writer, influencer, and uh, I would say social social movement builder. Bill, do you want to give any more of an intro on who who you are and and why you're here today? No, that's very kind. I mean, my my only real skill set is, is as a writer. That's what I learned how to do. And I wrote the first book about climate change for a, what we then called the greenhouse effect for a general audience back in 1989. But in recent years, I spend much of my time, as you say, volunteering at the task of failing to save the world. So, you know, on we go. Yeah, it's it's a hard, <laughs> we're making so much progress, but it always feels like we're a sizable distance behind what we need to do to solve the climate challenge. That, that's exactly right. And the reason it's right, and the thing that, that's the hardest to get across always to people is this one's a timed test. And we're just not used to timed tests in our public life. Most of the issues we have hang around for decades. You know, we're fighting about healthcare. We've been fighting about it since I was a kid. But this one doesn't hang around for decades. Once the Arctic's melted, no one's got a plan to refreeze it. So time, time, time. Yeah, we're hitting some really scary tipping points and, and dramatic events right now that I, that I think most of the climate science community thought was coming uh, later even. I would start with a question from one of our top writers, Steve Hanley, you probably read and tweet oh, yes. some of his stuff. He's, he's a tr- tremendous writer. His his big question for you is, he's writing about climate grief, and he's interested to hear your take on climate grief and how you think that can be leveraged to promote real political change. Well, it's a very, very good question. And I confess, I'm feeling more of it right at the moment than, than I have in a long time. I mean, and, and I've had decades to kind of come to terms with all of this one knows what's coming you know and even that's been insufficient emotional insulation this summer the pictures flooding in from around the world some of them are flooding uh, are just remarkable and and incredibly powerful and of course more powerful when one knows that for every picture we get out of western europe there are 10 such scenes in the developing world where there aren't camera crews and aren't you know, photographers by the score and so on. In my experience, the only way to deal with that emotional toll, and it's not a perfect solution, but it's a partial one, is to be as 
active as activist as possible. And I think that there are times when uh, the only antidote in my life for that sadness that works is anger and anger at particularly at the forces in our society, the fossil fuel industry above all, that have systematically lied about this for decades and put us in the position where we are. I'm not sure that that anger is is any emotionally healthier than the grief, but it's probably more productive in terms of getting stuff done because we're still at a place where breaking the political power of the fossil fuel industry is crucial to working at the pace that we now need to go. Yeah, and I think there's, it's especially, well, it's very difficult right now for a few, I mean, we're seeing a risk of Greenland melting. Yeah, we're seeing the the deadly flooding that no one expected in, in parts of Europe and, and China and elsewhere. So I think it is hitting a lot of us like as, I mean, for me, probably as bad as it has since I saw an inconvenient truth mm-hmm. in college or something. But the other thing I think is the US political situation where we have Democrats have the Senate sort of 50-50 with the tiebreaker, mm-hmm. the House and the presidency, and we are not able to get much through. And a big part of that is a couple of people, it seems, one from a cold state who's a Democrat, and we love that he's a Democrat. We wouldn't have a Democrat if it wasn't for him. But there's a kind of seems seemingly tone deafness to the urgency of some matters. I don't know. Is there anything you would like to say or could say about just the U.S. political challenge right now of having right. sort of having control, but not having control, which I think right. is what's what's hard. I, I, I got to say, I it feels to me like the Biden administration is doing what they can right now. And, you know, we've just yesterday watched the... Uh, I just lost you for a second, but you said is doing what, what they can. Is right? doing, yes. Yep. Not everything. And there's, you know, plenty of stuff I wish that they were doing that they could, like stopping big fossil fuel projects and things. But on this front of getting legislation passed, you know, it now looks like we've got this bipartisan infrastructure bill, which isn't particularly good on climate and includes a lot of stupid giveaways to the fossil fuel industry, but it's something. And it was the price for getting this other reconciliation, three and a half trillion dollar thing that we're going to be fighting over for the next couple of months. And that really seems to represent the one big chance that America will take a big cut at the climate crisis in this decade. And, and so I think it's incumbent on all of us to figure out how we can help make that happen. It is incredibly frustrating that Prime Minister Manchin gets to sign off on everything that happens, but that's where we are, you know? And it's a reminder that it would be good to win a few more Senate seats next time around so we weren't in quite the same hamstrung position. But look, our political machine is clearly geared to prevent change, not to accelerate it. It's an antiquated system in every way from the filibuster on the electoral college on down. And right now in an era when we need incredibly urgent action, that's particularly frustrating. But that said, what a difference a year has made, at least the country is no longer run for the moment by absolute, you know, jackasses who, you know, I mean, 
the fact that we came into 2020 with the president of the United States who believed that climate change was a hoax invented by the Chinese. I mean, if you were sitting on a bus next to someone who was muttering that, you'd get up and change seats, you know? But yeah. this was the guy who was running our country. So thank God for small blessings anyway. Yeah, my first article about him running was, could the US really elect a conspiracy theorist president? And it was from this <laughs> kind of background of wind turbine conspiracy theories, climate. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I didn't expect it to go to the conspiracy theory level we're at today. But first question on sort of trying to find some light. So how much do you think the extreme weather events that you, you and I just referenced are actually waking more people up and accelerating climate policy through the Biden administration or elsewhere or, or potentially accelerating action and policy? I think there are three things that are now working in conjunction to give us an opening here. One is, as you mentioned, that Mother Nature is a very good educator. And at the moment, she's basically hitting us upside the head with a two by four. You know, it turns out that warnings from scientists were not enough. We didn't pay attention. So now we're getting, you know, full uh, sense around, smell around, all dimensions, you know, sense of our falling. Second thing that matters is that we've spent the last 10 years building movements. And so we can, to some extent, capitalize on those opportunities and help people see what they mean. And you can see the effects of those movements, for instance, in the fact that there's now lots and lots and lots of good climate journalism out there in a way that there wasn't even five years ago. There's been a real response to that. Third thing, equally important, these all three are important, is the work that you know, engineers did over the last decade. And the fact that we've dropped the price of solar power, wind power, battery storage to the point where it's the cheapest way to produce energy on this planet makes everything less scary for most people. Zeitgeist, the sense of what's normal and natural and obvious is beginning to shift. And that's the thing that terrifies the oil companies. They're beginning to lose control of the narrative, which is why they're now spending hundreds of millions of dollars on Facebook ads and you know every form of greenwashing known to man and whatever else, because they sense that they're beginning to you know, lose their, some of their credibility. So those are the things that give us an opening. And if we had 75 years, they'd be enough, you know? We're clearly on a kind of glide path that'll take us to a world that runs on renewable energy because because it's free, you know, or super cheap. But if it, we rely on economic factors alone to get us there, if it takes us 75 years, then the world we run on sun and wind will be a broken world. So the job now is to you know force the spring, as they say, to catalyze that action so it comes much faster than it otherwise would. Yeah, I mean, we clearly focus a great deal on electric vehicles, solar energy, <laughs> and other a few other clean tech solutions. And it is, it's very uplifting to see the rapid progress, to talk about the disruptive growth and all that. I mean, those of us who are watching both screens at the same time, the, the climate screen just feel like we're always a lap behind, no matter how fast we go. And it's very 
difficult. But well, well, speaking just a little more about those extreme events, like for example, we didn't we didn't really talk about the U.S. West right now, which has been on mm. fire, has has been dry. I mean, we're hitting some really serious effects that mm-hmm. anyone with any connection to the U.S. West is getting concerned about water supply, about their mm-hmm. houses burning down, and I feel like there's it's just not not a good thing, but it, it is expanding. I think the population of people who are deeply concerned and who are ready to take action, who are ready to push for action. I, I feel like you're more tied into that kind of movement of, of growing the, the, the base. And we're sort of focused quite heavily on tech so much now that we get all mm-hmm. the tech enthusiasts. But do you, right. do you feel like there's a kind, of, a, a kind of extra large circle that's growing from this? Clean Tech Talk is brought to you by Voltus, a leading technology platform connecting distributed energy resources to electricity markets, delivering less expensive, more reliable, and more sustainable electricity. Voltus is on a mission to help solve the climate crisis by unlocking the full value of distributed energy resources, and we want your help getting there. To view our open positions, visit voltus.co slash cleantechnica. That's www.voltus.co forward slash cleantechnica. California is the most interesting place in the world to watch what's going on. Because on the one hand, they're doing more with tech, clean tech in particular, than any place outside of China anyway. You know, all all the Elon Musks and the thousand other junior versions of them that are churning out interesting tech and, and stuff. And at the same time, California's you know, I mean, as the San Francisco Chronicle said in an editorial during the fires last year, it's an open question about how much of this state is going to be habitable by humans going forward. You know, I mean, people now just the summer and early autumn are just periods of fear for people as they wait for the next fire to break out. And the rest of us sense that because, you know, our skies here in Vermont were filled with haze from the big wildfires out west uh, day after day last week. They told us our air quality was unhealthy. We should go indoors. But you really sense it if you're living there in the place that we used to think was was sort of our synonym for a kind of paradise, you know, but that's not that's going to be more. That's got to be especially weird, though. I mean, I'm in Florida, so I haven't experienced that but to be on the East Coast and be told the smoke in the skies <laughs> is from California, that's got to be a yep. little apocalyptic, right? I mean, absolutely. And there are plenty of apocalyptic. I mean, we learned today that the uh, massive wildfires in Siberia, which are bigger this year than all the fires in the rest of the world combined, are producing so much smoke that the skies above the North Pole are hazy with smoke today. I mean, damn. Yeah, so so let's just launch right into the to the next depressing topic. Um, So so the you know all of this stuff we're talking about these are sort of the baby effects of the climate greenhouses we've already built. This is one of the hard things about covering this is that we know the effects we see today are from the past and what we've put into Mm -hmm. the greenhouse system, (laughs) the greenhouse gases that we've put in that we've put into the atmosphere uh, this year are really going to see their effects in the future. So do you want to Mm-hmm. toss your hand at what we can expect in 2025, 2030, not that well, far out. Well, but, let's, you know. let's talk about it in the largest terms. I mean, clearly over the next five years, things are 10 years, things are going to get steadily worse in terms of the of physical effects because the temperature is going to keep going up and there's no 
way at this point to break that cycle in five or 10 years. I mean, the three key numbers here are one, two, and three. We've raised the temperature of the planet one degree Celsius, close to two degrees Fahrenheit so far. That one degree Celsius has already caused huge trouble. I mean, most of the Arctic sea ice is melted. That's tossed the jet stream into turbine, you know, into chaos. And it seems to be doing the same thing with the Gulf Stream. That's bad. Three degrees is Celsius, five, six degrees Fahrenheit, is where we're headed on current kind of business as usual terms. If we keep the promises that we made in Paris, then the temperature of the planet will go up three degrees Celsius. If that happens, I think it's a pretty fair bet. And I think an awful lot of scientists are coming to agree that it will be hard pressed to have civilizations like the ones we're used to, just too much chaos. So two becomes the you know, next important number. Can we hold the temperature increase below two degrees Celsius? And that's what everybody's work is devoted to now, not to stopping global warming way too late for that, not even to keeping it from getting miserable. It's going to be miserable. It's can we stop it short of the place where it cuts civilizations off at the knees? And that's going to be a very hard task. The physical momentum of these systems is enormous. And slowing them down is, is extraordinarily hard. So it's going to be an epic fight to stay below two degrees. But that's the fight of our lifetimes. And in certain ways, the biggest fight human beings have ever engaged in as a species. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into a little bit of some nuanced topics. I'm not sure even your opinion on some of these things, but yeah, as you mentioned earlier, the oil and gas industry has been using every trick in the book they can to delay progress. There are a couple specific instances that uh, some are more clear than others, but where you see interesting avenues they've taken. So one, let's talk about hydrogen. So hydrogen has gotten a lot of press in renewable energy, clean tech media, a lot of policy support, a lot of policy initiatives. A lot of people, top engineers we, we consult with, see it as a delaying tactic, a kind of a sneaky way for oil and gas industry to say, yeah, yeah, we'll be green, we'll be green, we'll all be green, but let's you know, focus on the hydrogen, let's put billions in, in, into this, let's put a lot of programs and subsidies to, to support this. And then later down the road, oh, well, we don't have enough green hydrogen, so let's just use what we have. So this yeah. is a concern, a big concern, and I see a lot of people in our, in our industry covering hydrogen in a very uh, in a way that I think is dangerous. So I don't know yeah. what your take is on it, but I'd like to hear a little bit what, what you have to yeah, say. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you've outlined it correctly. I think it's a way for the fossil fuel industry to try and keep the basic infrastructure of their system intact, burning something, sending something down the pipes we already have, so on and so forth. All of this is a way to for them to try and avoid the uncomfortable fact that solar power and wind power now provide cheaper energy than what they do. And, and hydrogen is sort of part of what they do. It's about burning something. I mean, the key, I think the key distinction here is both for, for economic reasons, but above all for climate reasons, our basic task is to stop burning things on planet Earth, coal, gas, oil, wood, whatever you want, and rely instead on the fact that the good Lord was kind enough to put a huge fire 93 million miles away that we now know how to take full advantage of. And, and so we should. 
And, you know, there'll be huge amounts of money because the fossil fuel industry has big political power. There'll be huge amounts of money spent trying somehow to prop up their system. So hydrogen, so, uh, you know, uh, carbon storage and sequestration from fossil fuel plants, whatever. I mean, none of it makes much sense. You can do it, some of it, but once you've put the huge, you know, uh, store, you know, capture and sequestration thing on the smokestack and built all the pipe to put it down in the salt mine and whatever, you're obviously way better off just having spent the money building wind turbines. You know, the only thing that we're preserving by doing this is the business model of the fossil fuel industry. And and truthfully, why? I mean. There's more jobs to be had doing building out an electrified world. The only thing that suffers in that world are, are the fortunes of people who own coal mines and oil wells. Yeah, very good. I, I'm happy to hear, hear you say everything I would like to hear. And, and I, I think you have a talent with words. I don't know if anyone's ever mentioned this to you, but you have the, the, I'll, I'll say one of my favorite the way someone has put this in context, I think it was Desmond Wheatley, I believe it was, founder of Envision Solar, if my memory is correct. He explained, you know, that one of the biggest moments in human history was we learned how to burn stuff. And right now, we're at the point where we can stop burning stuff. Well, and it's a pre- how to not burn so, stuff. Yeah. yeah, so we've got, I mean, we, it's taken us that long to go from learning how to burn stuff to learning how to <laughs> get everything else without, all the same stuff without burning stuff, heat, uh, yeah. electricity, everything. So it's a pretty... When you look at that that full deep historical context, it's a pretty huge shift. But it, you it might comes say with those it's challenges. you might say it's the burning issue for our time on time on Earth. <laughs> I did not see that coming. This was the first part of a two part interview with Bill McKibben. If you like what you've been listening to and you appreciate our Clean Tech Talk podcast series, feel free to give us a like and a good review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Walk, 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 walk,